Hey, it's Liz Kelly. One Shiny Podcast will be touring from Friday, November 2nd to Wednesday, November 7th, where Tate, Titus, and nephew Kyle are traveling to Columbus, Ohio, Louisville, Kentucky, Bloomington, Indiana, and Chicago, Illinois to tip off the college basketball season. You can find links to tickets on The Ringer's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Also, be sure to catch up on all of our NBA preview Palooza content from Tuesday, where you can find Bill Simmons, Shea Serrano, Joe House, and more previewing the start of the NBA season. You can check it all out on YouTube. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me today in the studio is Allison Herman. Let's go camping. I'm so excited. Allison and I are going to talk a little bit about Lena Dunham and Jenny Connors' new show, Camping. We are also going to talk about The Haunting of Hill House, which is something we both feel very passionately about. In the positive, I think. Yes. Yes. Okay. And then I'm joined later by Gareth Evans, who directed the really insane horror movie Apostle, which is currently on Netflix. And that was a really interesting conversation. Gareth is probably the best action director on the planet, uh, yet he has decided to make an early 20th century horror torture poem about Dan Stevens getting stretched out by Michael Sheen on medieval torture devices. So, fun stuff. You're making an incredibly compelling pitch <laughs> no, for this really, movie. No, it's really, it's a very, <laughs> very, seen. very strange and awesome movie. So we'll talk a little bit about that later with the director. But Allison, I want to talk to you about these two shows right now. I guess they're both about family. <laughs> um, That's a good synthetic way of framing them. Yeah. Yes. Uh, let's talk a little bit about camping. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when you and I were both sort of watching screeners. And I think that I had a very blasé attitude about this and I didn't expect it to be as divisive a show. I don't really know if it's even divisive. I think people are just like I think re- it's just rejecting it straight Startlingly up. negative, yes. Yeah. Which I think we, I can confidently say neither of us is really in full alignment with that consensus. I think it's also, I don't think it works. I agree that, you know, I don't think it's necessarily a creative success, but I think there are more interesting and measured ways to evaluate that lack of success than this sucks. So this is automatically going to come along with the Lena Dunham price tag. Yes, uh, at this and point. I do have Lena Dunham takes. I think that they're <laughs> excusable because they're about her art and not her person. Good. Okay, why don't, but we, why don't you start wherever you want to start? You want to start with Lena or you want to start with the show or you want to start with I'll a start combination with, of both? It's a combination of both because I think it's drawing the common lines between this and girls, which okay. is, you know— I and others have complained frequently about film directors who go into TV who aren't necessarily fully prepared for the adjustment, Woody Allen, Martin Scorsese, what have you. I think Girls was a really underrated example of that phenomenon in that I think it was pretty clear that this was an independent film director, someone who got her start with Tiny Furniture, which was a feature, someone who probably if you asked her when she was like 18 or 19 where she saw her career going, she would have said filmmaker, And she got a deal from HBO, and she's not an idiot, so she took it up. And I think Girls definitely had its moments, but I think a lot of its weaknesses were tied pretty closely to the fact that, at least in my reading, this is someone who was clearly more comfortable with finite, closed stories Mm -hmm. and had a little more trouble with building, like, a full six-season convincing arc for all these characters. Like, all the best episodes or all the most acclaimed episodes of Girls were these bottles, like One Man's Trash and Beach House. Sure. Just get everyone in a room and bounce them off each other. And Girls kind of frayed apart when you zoomed out and were like, why is this person acting like this? Like, Marnie season one has nothing to do with Marnie season five. They don't like each other. Why should I like them? Exactly. Or just, like, the dynamics of the group doesn't make any sense. So when I heard about Camping, which is a limited series, it's just eight episodes, it's starring a movie star, it's very much, like, in that vein, 
I was like, oh, great. This is exactly where I would have thought that Lena Dunham and Jenny Connor should go next. They should tell a finite story because that's clearly, like, where their natural impulses and interests are. I think the problem with camping is that it it does have that, but at least to me, they also it has a lot of the problems that girls have. They don't read as convincing. The characters in this series do not read as fully realized people. No, and I th- I think that camping has like a little problem with what aisle it's being placed in. Okay. <laughs> so if camping was on, dare I say, CBS, which I don't think it would be, I think it would be seen as as quite amusing. I should say up front that I laugh multiple times per episode of camping. I've seen a couple of them now. I think you've seen, we've seen about the same amount. I would also say safely that at least in the first half of the season, what you see in the first episode is pretty much what you're going to get for for the next few episodes. They go yeah, it's consistent. deeper into the characters, but for the most part, it feels like they had the uh, concept for the show. That it's, a re- it's a remake of a British show, right? British? Yeah, British called Camping by Julia Davis. I actually interviewed Jenny Connor, and she told me it sort of came into their crosshairs when Zadie Smith sent oh. Lena Dunham the show just to be like, <laughs> oh, this is a good show. You should watch it. And then they decided to make it work and adapt it. But, yeah, I mean, the, the premise is in the title. It's literally just a bunch of people who don't really like each other. Yeah, good upper middle class people from L.A. who are up, like, a, I take it it's supposed to be, like, an hour and a half north of, like, not Ojai, but. Yeah, I think they shot in, like, Santa Clarita area. But, yeah, like, you drive a couple hours, so you're removed, but not too far removed. Yeah, and it, it feels like a lot of the jokes are derived from keywords from blog posts. You know, like, Reiki. And now, yeah, Reiki healing and chronic pain and a certain kind of like there's a the B plot about the midlife crisis is that various husbands are going through at various points and it's all of these people who are now that they're out in the wilderness they're kind of like letting their guard down and sort of saying who they actually are and who they see themselves as at this point and it, I, I think that like if it was just like this kind of well-funded sitcom that was taking place in this limited amount of uh, episodes and put in this very specific setting, I think people would probably come to it with a little bit of a different expectation. But when you attach HBO to it and you put Jennifer Garner in it and you say it's from Lena Dunham and then it's the most significant thing she's done since Girls, there's going to be all sorts of expectations around it. Oh, I totally agree. And I will say, like, I think she's a great joke writer. I think Lena Dunham and Jenny Connor both have an amazing voice. They have a very particular rhythm to their dialogue. I think it's cool that they have an outlet for that. And there are a lot of thematic consistencies. You know, we're still having unlikable female protagonist think pieces written in 2018. But Jennifer Garner's character is very unappealing and strident and hard to wrap your head around, which I actually enjoy. I like that they're trying to make it work. And I don't think the problem really lies with that character. It's just that the emotional underpinning, I basically think, like, the jokes are good. The show itself cannot be great because even comedy is driven by mm-hmm. people yeah, and sure. characters. Yeah, and yeah. these feel like delivery devices for jokes and not fully realized like I said before, fully realized people. That's the buzzword that I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm looping back to over and over again. Yeah, it's just, I remember there's this one joke where one of the side characters played by Arturo del Puerto, uh, you know, offhandedly mentions he's on a rebound recently divorced and he brings along this woman, Jandis, which, again, like, that's a weird Lena Dunham thing is you give all your characters bizarre names like Jandis <laughs> that no one actually has that right. kind of prevents you from having Somewhere that connection. Somewhere there's a watch listener named Marnie being like, how dare you? 
Marnie is like on the low end yeah. of that spectrum, but you can definitely like get a little bit of it. But yeah, he just offhandedly mentions that he's a human rights lawyer. Uh-huh. And I remember hearing that and being like, nothing about this character really reads that way to me. It's just a funny joke that he's offhandedly it's, it's mentioning. It's yeah. Yeah, and it's just like they didn't really consider the full context of these people's lives or relationships. And I feel like when you're having the, they're all trapped together and it's all going to come out, you need to recognize what's coming out, you know? Yeah. This uh, Also, this show feels very much under the influence of Sharon Horgan, who has nothing to do with this show whatsoever. But over the last few years, I've done this thing where she's in Catastrophe. She made Motherland. She did this show. I don't even know if it ever they ever went beyond a pilot episode that was aired, but it was called The Circuit, which is, is a this dinner party show that she made where, like, her and, her, and th- this character she plays and her husband go to this, like, awful dinner party. And I think that the idea is that they would keep going to these different dinner parties, and that's where it be told but it's almost like television as a short story collection where you're not overly committed to any one thing and obviously catastrophe has has become somewhat of a a success both here and obviously in england and it's on amazon but it almost feels like sharon horgan is allowed to like do these kind of just like experiments you know what i mean try this thing out and a couple of episodes come out of it and people are like oh that was delightful and then with lena it's just too much it's just there's too much of her out there and there's too much stuff that's attached baggage now I think that there are different people and they are do- making different jokes. But do you see what I'm saying where there's just like an expectation that comes along with Lena Dunham's stuff? I do. There's also something kind of Phoebe Waller-Bridge in it to me where it's like you make your name with this autobiographical series that you are starring in and then you're like, well, actually, I'm mostly a writer, yeah. so I'm going to step behind the scenes and do Killing Eve or in this case, I think camping is kind of the trial balloon. I agree that there's just a lot of baggage attached to this, both in terms of, like, specifically Lena Dunham and also this being, like, the follow-up to her breakout project. And it's also difficult— Wasn't she going to do some, like, 1950s period piece? Wasn't that, like, in the works for I think it's, like, one of those HBO things where they're like, we're developing this, and then it just just never happens. It's also very difficult to—I would love to, like, look at this and be like, this is what it says about her career going forward, but there's this additional wrinkle of she and Jenny Connor have been partners through Girls and This. And they announced a few months ago that they're bringing their creative partnership to a close, which— I have no inside information on the story there, nor will I speculate about it, but yeah. it's just, you know, the nature of their work going forward seems to it seems likely like, to and change. Camping was probably a product of that flux and that change. You know what I mean? Given the timing of it, I would imagine yeah. that this was coming at the end of the cycle for their working relationship. I mean, they literally announced it. I think the show might still have been in production. It was— like, at TCA's this summer when they were pl- explaining what the show is, and they were like, and by the way, this will be our last thing together. Interesting. So it's just hard to look at it and be like, okay, so this is what this says about the future of this du- writing duo because yeah. the writing duo no longer exists. And now we're going to, I guess, learn a little bit more about who Lena Dunham is as a solo artist and who Jenny Connor is when she either partners with someone else or solo produces. So to go back to what you were saying before, do you look at camping as being an effort on her part to make like sustainable television and to just kind of live within that world? Or do you think it still suffers from some of the same like uh, cinematic pressures that you think maybe were on top of girls? Well, one of the things I actually liked about it is maybe the natural comparison would be a really big ticket 
movie star anchor movie miniseries like Big Little Lies mm-hmm. or Sharp Objects. And I kind of liked that this felt smaller. Um, when I talked to Jenny, she also told me that this had been greenlit before Jennifer Garner signed on, mm-hmm. which means it wasn't this like Big Little Lies. Obviously, Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman made that happen. So this still, at Same least thing to me— for, like Maniac, where yeah. the Jonah and Emma still Yeah, it's involved. not the sort of like reverse or cart leading the horse situation that you get with a lot of movie star TV. It still feels very much like TV, which— to me, feels very in line with your observation that it's basically a sitcom. Mm-hmm. And it's okay for things to just be kind of funny and not really work, especially when the whole thing is only four hours. Yeah. I guess I'm sort of okay with being like, yeah, this is an experiment, and it didn't really work out, and that's it. And I feel like there's just the Lena Dunham of it all gets the knives out really quickly. Yeah, and I, I don't think that the characters on the on the show are particularly likable. And that's a, even for 26 minutes, it's tough to ask people to hang out with that. Yeah, I just again, I'm so I mean, surprised. Like I'm so Sky. surprised I, we're still having those conversations, yeah. <laughs> like about likability or about just yeah, talking about camping. Yeah, yeah. about likability. It's just like, yeah, of course. Like a lot of comedies are about horrible people. That's totally fine with me. And and it, if anything, in this case, it's it's a little easier for me to swallow them with girls because with girls, it's like, okay, you don't like this person now. Just wait four years, <laughs> and she's still terrible. Yes, yeah, she's worse. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's talk about something we do like. Let's okay. talk about Hill House. Speaking of fully realized characters. Yes. That's what I like about this show. So um, that's a really good way of putting it because I think that Hill House is an acquired taste, especially I think it takes a little bit of while to recognize the tempo and the, understand the mechanics of the dramatic world that it takes place in. But one thing that you can't say is that it's not fully realized. That it, visually, in terms of the tone of the performance of each of the characters. So in case you don't know anything about this show, it's called The Haunting of Hill House. It's based on a Shirley Jackson novel. It's directed and largely written by this guy, Mike Flanagan, who's, to me, one of the most exciting horror directors out there. He directed Hush and Gerald's Game. And, and he's basically like a Netflix native son. Like, Hush and Gerald's Game are well, both Well, he Netflix started things. out a little bit more in the Blumhouse school where uh-huh. he had done this movie. Uh, he did, he did he'd done Hush. I don't know in the order of when he shot it, but I think Hush was released before Ouija 2. And Ouija 2 was, Blumhouse is just like, we have this IP. Like, Paramount's going to let us make another one. What could you do? What would you want to do with this budget? And he made this movie uh, with Elizabeth Reeser that is like kind of like a 70s Polanski movie, De Palma movie, that has like some Ouija you know, stuff in, attached to it. And if you look at the IMDb, it's very clear that actors like working with him. Yes. Like Elizabeth Reeser is in Hill House, so is Kate Siegel, who I believe Carla was— Carla Gugino, who yeah. was on on Monday show, has been in Gerald's Great Game, and now she's in and now she's in Hill House. So people show up. Henry Thomas was in Ouija 2. He's in uh, Hill House. So, yeah, like repeat performances from people. And, you know, he makes—this show is essentially uh, a family drama. It's, a, it's about trauma, and trauma is— reflected or represented through horror. But the horror aspect of it, I think, it's not secondary or separate from the family drama, but it is deeply intertwined with pretty recognizable problems that all families have. Yeah, and it's interesting to me because horror is not a genre that has given rise to a lot of serialized multi-season television. Like, obviously, Twilight Zone. There's been horror TV. It's just a difficult thing to turn into a multi-season thing. And it's weird because, on the one hand, all the best horror is rooted in character, Mm -hmm. and serialized TV is such a great opportunity to just give you tons and tons and tons of backstory, and that's part of what Hill House does so well. But on the other hand, it's really hard to ask people to be (laughs) terrified 
terrified for 10 yeah, hours. Yeah, I mean, like, intensity is the sort of core of that of that genre. It's and like building up to these moments and to ask people to go through that every week or every hour, depending on when you're watching these episodes. Yeah. And one of, the, one of the things I actually really liked about how Hill House handles that is you know right away that at least in terms of, like, the very base, like, who gets out of this alive question, you get the answer to that really quickly. Yeah, because there's there's— Flash. It's told basically on two timelines. It's told there's this there's this family, the Crane family, and they're told basically from their childhood these siblings who are living in this house in New England that their parents are trying to restore and flip. I don't know if flipping was around. I think it's supposed to be taking place in like the early eighties or something. It's, they specifically mentioned ninety two at some point, but yeah, it sounds like you know with every haunted house story you need a like why are they sticking around? Yeah, and in this right. case, It's like they spent all their money on this giant mansion. Yeah, they're underwater on this house essentially, yeah. and they have to fix it up. But while they're there, obviously things things go boom in the night. So there's the childhood aspect and then there's these kids as when they become adults and it's played by Michael Wiesman and Elizabeth Reeser and a couple of other folks and it's four siblings, Nell and Luke who are twins and Shirley and Stephen who well, are... Well, it's five and then um, are we, should we spoil the... I guess it's like in the first episode, but one of the siblings in the present timeline passes away and yes. then the other four have to kind of come together and they're all estranged because of this horrible thing that happened in their childhood. Right. So it's... As you mentioned, a family drama. But, yeah, I I have sort of an uneven history with horror. I was definitely one of those people who could not go near it all through the kind of hostile aughts era of because torture of, porn. it was gross or because yeah, just you because just don't I, like being scared? I was just like, yeah. I don't have the stomach for this. And then, you know, the kind of artisanal wave started with It Follows. <laughs> and it was like, well, to be on top of the culture, I have sure, to. Sure, yeah. And then at that point, I was like, okay, I'm, well, I think I'm— when you see something like It Follows and you see the the jump scares that are in it, does that still freak you out? or is No, it, that was sort of like, okay, I stayed away because I was scared. Now I know I can handle it. And now I'll watch things like even Don't Breathe. Like, I'll go to see okay. regular horror like it you, I, I don't have to it doesn't have to be get out for me to get interested but there's there's still like a slight hesitation so I this was not on my radar prior uh-huh. to its release this weekend obviously October is a great time to release a horror story it was literally all I saw anyone talking about over the weekend so I had some initial difficulties getting into the pilot but then I started it and I was just so impressed there are little things like the writer in me is just so in awe at the structure mm-hmm. where you know the flashbacks aren't necessarily in chronological order there's a little patchwork but you are totally clear on what's happening all the time and they're really good at like balancing information so you kind of feel like you know what's happening but they have to withhold some stuff but it doesn't feel nonsensical it doesn't feel like mystery boxy it's like they'll get to it and you know they are going to get to it but it's not like you you're not going to get tricked about it yeah and you're not like wait what like yeah. you're you're never spun around and it's a really hard balancing act that they're doing and you know, you know it's something Netflix... happened to the mom you know something is yes. going to happen to these yeah and yeah. it's a Netflix drama so we probably have to mention the runtime at some point, but one thing I really appreciated, and it's something weirdly in common with Orange is the New Black, where Orange is the New Black is one of very few shows on Netflix that I feel like earned its runtime because it has like 472 characters and it fits them all in. And this show is basically like you're dealing with both the present and past versions of the family who are essentially like two separate characters, Uh which means like at minimum you have like 10 to 12 core characters whose stories you have to serve. And... Yeah, like, because that's a lot of people, it doesn't feel overstuffed, even though most episodes are at kind of the 50-60 mark, 170. Like, it feels like a a full and rich show. And yet, weirdly, I started to notice, like, basically, the first four episodes 
involve getting every single character to the to same place. To one room. And then there's a sixth episode with, we're not going to give anything really plotty away right now, but I will say that sixth episode is the one that I think people are going to be talking about a lot because it's this tour de force of direction that essentially takes place in a funeral home with all the major characters in the room together. And it's shot basically like Rope, the Hitchcock movie, where it's a series of long, long one-take shots that cut sort of invisibly as they pan to different parts of the room. And it's essentially shot like a play. It's Yeah. It's, yeah. it's like a mid-season bottle episode, which a lot of Netflix shows tend to have, but usually it's like, oh, the whole rest of the season is basically like one movie, but we're going to have this one episode. And this I also appreciated because the preceding four episodes are all totally character-based. Mm-hmm. Like every sibling gets their own side of the story told until they are all put in a room together. So now you understand the baggage that everyone is bringing to the table. And you mentioned the two separate sort of families that they are in. Essentially, it's one family, but the childhood and the adulthood. That uh, One of the things I really like that this show is doing is, uh, you know, when you watch It, for instance, there are some situations uh, where you see like, oh, this kid is cool or funny in the way that this adult is cool or funny. Like, they're just basically smaller versions of the adult character. But you can actually see in some of the Crane family how what happens in their childhood breaks them. I think— it take, in or some takes cases, away in a, like an essential sweetness or like innocence of this of these characters. I think some people, their adult versions were cast better than others. For yes. example, the adult <laughs> version of Luke is supposed to be <laughs> so. As a kid, he's like this bespectacle, coke bottle glasses, like nasally stuffed. And up then voice. he turns into Chris Evans on heroin, right? And he's <laughs> but he's supposed to be a junkie, and that dude looks like he could run a marathon yes. tomorrow. He, he looks like he plays tight end for the Chiefs. It's like yeah. get get your C list Aaron Paul. Yeah. like get someone who looks like a tweet skinny white guy and don't get someone who looks like you just painted a scab on him in makeup yeah. and and otherwise like he works out at Equinox every day. But it actually, because of the Coke bottle glasses and everything, you actually are just left to wonder like what happened to this kid? Because yeah. it's clearly a choice that he made to make this little kid so dorky and sweet and have this this adult version be so broken and and, and kind of brooding, you know? Uh, so I thought that that was really fascinating. I'm, I'm still trying to unpack the Henry Thomas plays the younger version of Timothy Hutton. <laughs> yeah, that's a little weird. <laughs> uh, but, it, you know, the uh, the entire show is really, really fascinating. Um, and, it, you know, I think we often talk about horror and a lot of these genre things, especially on this podcast as like Trojan horses where you advertise the genre stuff, but really there's like this core drama at the heart of it. I wouldn't even necessarily say that this movie, this show is ashamed of its genre trappings. I think the genre trappings are sewn into the story of tragedy. Yeah, not at all. And I don't think it's like it's really, a family drama is necessarily the right way to sell it in the sense that like all horror like horror isn't a pure genre there's like all different kinds of it there's psychological there's slasher there's whatever so like this is just the flavor of horror that it it goes with is you know the ties that bond us all together yes exactly (laughs) which is the scariest horror of all yeah family family is the is the real boogeyman okay so we we we're very in on the haunting of hill house you can go back and listen to my interview with carla gugino from monday if you'd like to hear a little bit more about the making of that show. It was really interesting hearing her talk about it. We are a little bit more mixed on camping, but feel free, you know, stick with it. There's there's LOLs every episode. It's just, you probably won't want to go camping anytime soon after watching it. Add me with your thoughts. I'm here for them. <laughs> uh, coming up next, my interview with Gareth Evans, director of Apostle. Thanks for listening. Andy will be back on Monday. It's our 300th episode. Oh my God, congratulations. Thank you. So we're doing a mailbag. Send your, uh, send your questions to the Watch Pod on Twitter. And we'll get those all together and answer those on Monday. Until then, have a good weekend. 
Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Microsoft Surface. Let's talk about something super exciting, like the newest member of the Microsoft Surface family, the Surface Pro 6, now faster and more powerful than ever before, so you can get even more done, whether it's from your office, at the airport, or on your couch. Take the keyboard off and draw on it easily, or snap it back on and type on it like a laptop. With up to 13 and a half hours of battery life and the new 8th gen Intel Core processor, you can work how you want to for as long as you want to wherever work takes you. I just wanted to have a conversation about this movie Apostle, which kind of blew my mind when I saw it. If I can start with it, like, so you finish The Raid 2 and you're, you're thinking to yourself, you're one of the best action movie directors in the world and you're thinking about what you're going to do next. What is it that leads you to British folk horror? <laughs> I was going to do a different film first. I had finished The Raid 2 and I was sort of developing a film that I was going to make. It was going to be my first sort of American movie. We were going to shoot it in Europe. It was more of a sort of contemporary action film. It was a step away from martial arts, but it was, um, you know, a lot of gunplay, a lot of car work. And that fell through. We had like scheduling conflicts and various different bits and pieces that kind of like got in the way of that getting made. And at the time we wanted to get it made. And so I was kind of at a place where I had moved back to the UK anyway. And I really wanted to sort of like make something. It had been it had been a while since I'd been on production uh, in production on anything, and so I started trawling through these old ideas that I had in my drawer. And one of them was from an, an old short film that I I had I had it was incomplete. It was an incomplete short film that I was making back in like the early two thousands, and I kind of shot it in my nan's house. It was it was prior to doing anything professional. The central concept of that was about a sibling searching for a missing sibling. When they turn up at the house, all that's there is an envelope with a rose petal inside it and some like earth, some soil. And so that initial concept was something that kind of still intrigued me. And so I started taking that as a, as a leaping off point. And I said to the guys at XYZ, specifically um, Aaron Tatekian, about developing this thing and creating something that would be totally different from what everyone is expecting me to do next. I knew, I, I'd done three martial arts films back-to-back with Maranto, The Raid, and The Raid 2. So that was not really something I was interested in doing next. I didn't really want to go back into that genre. So I, I thought, you know what, I had such fun doing Safe Haven with um, Timo for the VHS2 segment. I thought, why not delve back into that? Why not flex that muscle again and try, try something different and try horror? And so at around that time, I was sat there in the house watching movies and trying to do the, you know, like the whole shame list of films that you really should have seen by now, but you just haven't for yeah, whatever reason. Yeah, you're going back through the canon, right? Exactly. And, and one of the films that I had never seen, but I'd heard so much about was Ken Russell's The Devils. And so I watched that and I was just absolutely blown away by it. Like dude, from a technical level, the design of it, but also that it had something to say. And so that was the initial impetus that was like, you know what, I want to do something within that genre. I want to go back and rewatch those films. I rewatch films like The Wicker Man or Witchfinder General, uh, Ben Wheatley's films like Kill List and A Field in England, and just start to analyze the aesthetics of them. Like even things like Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs, like that still fits sort of within that sort of folk horror tradition of you know the unusual community, the sort of the the, the behavioral traits that are ever so slightly askew that you just find so unsettling when you're in their company, and so. I looked at those films, I started studying them and, and, and pulling them apart and starting to figure out what could I bring to that genre that would be you know, different, but also 
have some of the DNA of the films that I've made in the past. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you were mentioning The Devils, and I that's a movie that was recently added to Filmstruck, but I actually remember my dad, who was British, had a book about Ken Russell's movies, and I remember as a kid flipping through it and seeing stills from The Devils and just thinking what the fuck is this? Like, <laughs> And was this actually allowed to be in theaters? And of course, it's one of the most controversial movies ever made. When you were watching it as an adult, were you just sort of like, they let him get away with this? Well, that's the thing. That was so, what was so awe-inspiring about that movie was that, uh, truthfully, I, I guess in a way, we've had a similar sort of introduction to that film because like all of my knowledge of that film prior to this came from sensationalist anti-censorship documentaries, you know, where yeah. um, it only ever show you the sort of the titillating shots of the nuns getting up to no good. Yes. Uh, as extreme and as sort of like visceral as that footage was, it's not what the whole film is about. You know what I mean? There's a much stronger sort of message in that movie. And I wasn't prepared for that to be there as, as front and center as it was. And that movie really, really did catch me by surprise. You know, as an adult watching it, it was, yes, there were elements there where I was like, holy crap, like what, what, yeah. what, what, what be like to be on set? Yes. You know what I mean? Because we had moments on a parcel. I mean, like the day I turned up to set to see what had only ever been uh, my sketch drawing of the sort of heathen stand table. Mm-hmm suddenly brought to life and put on set and it to be real and made of wood and metal. And then not only that, but also to see about 50 to 60 villagers all dressed in black occult robes and gowns. Like that was a surreal moment for me to kind of be on set and be like, oh, okay, we're filming that. Yeah, yeah. How much would you pay to hear the Carpenters like banter when they were putting together some of their torture devices for you. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I I probably said about a thousand times to, to shoot to various different HODs on the set. I'll, my mantra was basically, I'm a nice guy, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone asked me, like, how the hell did you come up with this stuff? And I'm always like, um, cheese tends to be my favorite answer for that. It's just like lots of cheese late at night. Yeah. Well, okay. So I did want to ask you in terms of inspiration, was there a particular piece, was it a historical document, any kind of a a history text or anything like that rooted in this early 20th century rural uh, environment, but also Dan Stevens' character obviously has been part of the Boxer Rebellion. I I gather from the movie and then there's this tension going on between the Michael Sheen Malcolm character and this sort of perceived antagonism from the crown. What kind of historical things are going on in Apostle that you were drawing from? With um, the Peking Boxer Rebellion, what that did was it centered us in terms of what what period of time we were going to actually tell our story in. I knew I wanted it to feel turn of the century between Victorian and Edwardian England. I knew I wanted that period. I just loved the tone and the texture of it. I love the feel of it and everything else. And so that was intriguing to me. I knew I didn't want it to be modern. I didn't want it to be contemporary set because I didn't want it. I didn't want to fall into the trappings of, you know, the typical shit, which would have been having to explain why you can't use a cell phone or something. You know what I mean? So I knew I wanted it to kind of strip away all of the modern technology from the, the talent of this story. And so that Peking Boxer Rebellion served a function not only to tell us what year we were in, what sort of what period of time we were setting a story in, but it also informed just how far this man will have fallen in terms of his belief. What absolute monstrosity could have happened to him to shake his core beliefs to such a degree that he would throw them away and, and, and abandon them. 
And that was a key sort of component in terms of giving us an idea of who Thomas was. But what it also gave us was a sense of what he is able to endure, yeah. what he is able to survive. And then that kind of would tell us, oh, he's going he's gonna to be willing to put himself through hell and back. That state of mind that he must be in and, and what he goes through in this film, once you see that flashback, you understand that this isn't an aberration from his normal life. This is his life. You know, there is no post-trauma. There is only trauma, really. Exactly. We wanted it to feel like, you know, obviously we want to talk about like the sort of like, the subtext of it being, you know, the idea of um, how dangerous it is when people of a political leaning will use and abuse other people's faith in order to further their political gains and how how corruptible it can be. And so that that was something we really want to play with. And so with Malcolm, we looked at those things and like, well, what could have put him on the outs? What could have made him be seen as someone who was treasonous in terms of his own country? And so we started playing with this idea of some of the tenets of what Malcolm talks about when he's in the church in the sermon. There's sort of early, 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 early forms of communism. Yeah. Malcolm doesn't actually live by those rules. He doesn't live by what he preaches. He says it's all about equality. He says that money has no value. But his house is bigger than anyone else's. He is the leader of this community. And he says it repeatedly. He says, I'm the leader of this community. So it's it's a weird sort of like, it's a it's hypocritical nature of him that he exposes this sense of equality and freedom of, of movement of life. But there's a curfew. There are things you must do. and There are rules you have to abide by. And so it's it's very far from the truth in a way. I really, I, one of the things I found fascinating was when the way in which we're introduced to this island and this, essentially this cult, is in a, in a lot of other movies that deal with groups like this, what the initial first act introduction is that this, our, our audience avatar comes across this group and it's like this utopia. You know, everybody yeah. seems happy, everybody seems to be drinking the Kool-Aid, sometimes to you know, the, the Jonestown way, but yeah. you know, you present this world and it's so grimy and dirty. And these people are essentially dirt farmers. And, uh, you know, where do you, where do you establish that sort of level of, of production design? And also that, that granular almost feeling of like unwashed people out in this like rural environment. I mean, that, that was one thing that really like immediately grabbed me. Well, I mean, I got to give huge props and credit to Tom Pierce, my production designer, because he, him and his team did an incredible job on this. Like in, in, in interviews, I've always kind of been saying like, oh yeah, we built this village. We I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> I turned up week after week in a very clean, brightly colored high-vis jacket to see the progress as they worked in the mud and the grime in the worst months of winter uh, for two months straight building that village. And they built it from the ground up, every stick of that that village was just constructed and assembled and scenic painted to make it feel like it was a, a real community that had been lived in, that had been explored, that had been worn down with time. And and that extended then, that, that design would extend into the, the wardrobe that they would wear as well. So I remember in early, early discussions, I spoke to uh, Jane Spicer, who's this amazingly talented wardrobe designer, costume designer. And in my more simplistic approach at the start of it, I said, you know, they should have a uniform. They should be like almost like Quakers. They yeah. should have a, a set, set clothing. And she was like, you know, I disagree. She says, let me, let me give every single person their own different costume, their own wardrobe. Everyone will feel slightly different. 
there'll be certain touchstones which stay the same, but like let them have their own individuality to them. And then she took all of those costumes and she, you know, she gave everyone little tiny pops of color here and there to make the background interesting, to make the, you know, even you know, not just the main players, but everyone who was part of that community had their own look, their own feel. And then like her, her team stress tested that wardrobe would wash and wash and wash again, damage them, rip them, fray the edges, you know, pick out the stitching on things, really make it feel like everyone who was in there had, you know, nothing felt bought off the rack, so to speak. So that level of, um, you know, grime and texture and grit was something that, you know, I know myself and Matt Flannery, my DP, have always loved in films. And we had a great team that was sort of like fully in support of that vision then. Yeah, that was so palpable in watching it. So I wanted to ask you a question about you and, and your relationship with Matt Flannery and specifically your approach to directing set pieces, which, you know, Apostle has a different kind of set pieces than maybe people are used to from you. There are some quote-unquote action scenes, but they're very much more... Uh, they're, they're products of the narrative itself, so there's not a lot of martial arts. There's no martial arts or anything. How do you take something... You see it on the page, it says... There's a straight razor fight between this boy and this man, Quinn. What's the first step you and Matt take when you're plotting out and blocking and thinking about camera movements? Because it's obviously just such a distinctive partnership that people know you by. I've never ever shot any action sequence in terms of getting coverage. And, and even though this film was not The Raid or The Raid 2, um, and it was never going to be that, you know, those little sort of detours into... Uh, let's say set pieces for the for the sake of it, those little details into those set pieces, they still had to feel like, you know, the shots were the best way of capturing the movements and the rhythms of the people who were involved. And so I, I've always, always, always done previews for everything that I've made. And so this was no exception to that. So when it came to sequences like the 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 razor blade fight, we treated it in the same way that we would have treated a fight scene in the raid. You know, we got together with the stunt choreography team. Um, you're led by Jupoya. And then we designed it. And we talked about the, the philosophy behind it. We talked about the tone of it. We talked about how Jeremy should be so filled with rage that it's almost like a rag doll being yanked around the room, but yeah. he's trying to smash him at every moment. So it was a, it was it was the psychology of those people of who they are and where they're at. And so, you know, from Quinn, it was almost like, you know, being a bear or a rhino with this little raccoon that's like jumping on him and trying to claw at him and trying to cut at him. And so he ends up having to use brute force in order to control him, but he's going to keep coming at him. And so that was sort of the, the initial sort of leaping off point for those, for those sequence, that sequence in particular. And then once we had designed it, we knew exactly where we wanted those characters to move and how that action was going to play out, you know, where to put the camera, how to edit. That's kind of almost hardwired into us now yeah it's just a case of always making sure that wherever we put that camera it's telling you the audience what's happening in that choreography and also giving you a clear definition a clear idea of the geography of the space that they're in and so that that's that's been the case for everything but then obviously you know each set piece carries with it uh, a different tonal shift so something like that sequence has to be quite frenetic that camera moves around a lot Something like the heathen stand sequence with the table with the drill bit. That's a different story completely. Yeah. That had hurt emotionally. That had to really, really feel painful to look at. Um, and even though, like, yeah, we do have like aftermath shots that show a level of detail, 
that will kind of like push audiences in a certain way. The setup of it was more clinical, it was more methodical. So we shot it in a more classical way. And so we kind of picked shots that would give the audience a clear and a detailed understanding of the mechanisms of that device. So you would know how things would work and you would know exactly the kind of damage that thing would do. But the moment it gets used, we cut away to people's yeah. reactions. Yeah. And even even people who would probably have seen that before and you can see how horrified they are. Yeah, exactly. And because and, and the reason why is because this this scene had to be about like I've seen set pieces in like folk horror films where you know it's 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 just a, a complete stranger of a character that's being brutalized and you've got no emotional investment with that character at all. But what I wanted to do with this was to have it be someone that we cared about, someone whose fate we gave a shit about. Yeah. And so when that happens, we understand why that community is upset. And what and what it gave me an opportunity was to show that members of that community were upset about what was happening. But they were afraid of this new militaristic dictatorship that was about to emerge in Quinn. Mm -hmm. Spoke volumes about the community then. It spoke volumes about the people who are, you know, following what they believe is their faith, but not aware of the monstrosity that's, you know, at the core of it, that's at the bottom of it, that's been fueling it in terms of that political movement. Gareth, I just wanted to ask a little bit about Gangs of London, if you don't mind me asking, just because I know yeah, that's sure. something that a lot of people who were listening to this show are probably really excited about. How's that going so far? Yeah, it's going great. I mean, I, this is, um, in a way, it's sort of a return to action. Um, and I'm, I'm working with uh, Jude Poyer again and his amazing stunt team who worked with us on Apostle. And we've basically been, we've been designing 10 hours worth of television, which has... Um, some pretty ambitious action beats throughout it. It's a completely different take for me. It's a completely different approach to me, being able to tell a story in long form. It's something that I've been co-created with Matt Flannery, my DP. And it's something we're going to start shooting, Christ, in about just over a month and a <laughs> half from now. So we're not far away from starting it. And um, it's really exciting. It's going to be a different, a different, different sort of um, uh what's called challenge for me after everything that I've done so far. So yeah, we, we, we're, we're not holding back. We're being pretty ambitious in terms of the, the set pieces, but also I feel like what we've got is something that speaks a lot about London as a city right now, the global politics overall, but also tells uh, a really sort of like rich layered detection sort of story about the people that inhabit the city as well. So yeah, you know, all things well, it'll 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 turn out something special. So yeah, we're we're really excited. Can't wait to get started on it. All right, good luck with that. I hope we can speak again when that comes out. Thank you so much for your time, Gareth. Thank you so much. Cheers. Take care, guys. 